you figured out the old world. You figured out the old way of doing stuff, but now it's a new ball game. You're like a novice now, and you have to act like that. That's the big thing that gets in the way of, of being a good questioner is just that certainty and knowledge and overconfidence in our own ability to, to know stuff. And so what I, say, what I like to say is that today, the comfortable expert must become the restless learner. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. EDW fans, we are excited to share our amazing guest with you today, Warren Berger. To ensure you don't miss him or any of our top voices in the future of work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and to our YouTube channel. Now, innovation expert and questionologist, yes, that's a real word, Warren Berger has studied hundreds of the world's foremost innovators, entrepreneurs, and creative thinkers to learn about how they ask questions, generate original ideas, and solve problems. He is the author and co-author of 12 books on innovation, including the bestseller, A More Beautiful Question, The Power of Inquiry to Spark Breakthrough Ideas, and that is going to be the focus of our book. He has also written the internationally acclaimed Glimmer, named one of Business Week's Best Innovation and Design Books of the Year. And his writing appears in Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, and the New York Times. And we have a huge shout out to give to Natalie Nixon for introducing us to Warren's work. We recently had a wonderful episode with Natalie talking about creativity. And she said, you have to read Warren's book, A More Beautiful Question. He's going to teach you how to ask questions. He's going to teach you how to use the power of questions as a superpower. And I immediately bought an Audible copy. And then I bought three paperback copies and immediately gave those away. So I am not pushing flattery when I say I only give away inspiring, amazing books. And I believe your book is vital to the future work. We need it right now. Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. And Warren, can you just quickly share with us what is happening with a more beautiful question? Yeah. Um, well, I came out with the book originally in uh, 2014. So it occurred to me that earlier this year that we were coming up in 2024 on the 10th anniversary. And the book has continued to do well. And it, it, always, it just keeps finding a new audience. It's really amazing when a book does that. Because a lot of times books, you know, they have a big splash at the beginning. They do well for a while. And then they kind of quietly fade away. And for some reason, this book just keeps, it keeps going. And new people keep finding it by word of mouth. And so it's great. So anyway, I said to the publisher, you know, I just want to keep the momentum going and we've got a 10th anniversary coming up. How about if we just kind of redo the book? So that's what I've done this year. And I've kind of added about 40% new material and we're going to re-release it, republish it earlier in, in the year, early in 2024. Like it's going to be out in February, I think. That's fantastic. Uh, we are that new audience that has just discovered your book and we think it could not be more more relevant than ever. So. Uh, you know, we're really, really excited to, uh, to see the new version. Let's dive in. We thought a really fun and powerful way to bring your work to life for our audience could be asking you, what is a beautiful question that changed your life? 
Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I have one that I can think of right away. There's probably a few, you know, but, but the one that comes to mind is the one that was the genesis of all this work that I'm doing now and questioning. And um, I was a journalist. I, I used to write for the New York Times and, and other publications. And so questioning was, it was like a part of my everyday work. I, you know, that's what you do as a journalist. You ask people lots and lots of questions. So I was doing that and it occurred to me somewhere along the line that I was teaching myself to be a better questioner, but it didn't seem like there was that much stuff out there on questioning. Like there weren't a lot of people talking about the art of questioning, the science of questioning. You know, it was almost taken for granted, weirdly. And even, you know, it's funny, even when I went to journalism school, and I went to a good journalism school, I went to um, Syracuse University's school, it's a very good program. There was nothing on questioning. I mean, I don't remember a single class being dedicated to, you know, how to ask better questions. And, you know, for a journalist, that's, that's, that's weird, <laughs> you know? So, um, so the, the question that came into my head along the way is why isn't someone paying more attention to questioning? Why isn't there more of a focus on questioning? And that's a, like a classic, beautiful question. You know, when, when I look at um, a lot of the stories in my book about how innovations came out of questions, oftentimes someone is looking around and saying, why isn't somebody doing a better job of this? Or why is there this gap in the market that people need this thing and yet they can't get it? So it's amazing how many innovations started with a why question like that. And, and that's basically the same thing that happened to me. I, I mean, I was asking why, why isn't someone doing more with questioning? And then what, what happens when you do that, when you raise that kind of question, is you tend to move to, you tend to evolve to like uh, the next set of the next question and the next question. And usually it's like, okay, why isn't someone doing more with questioning? What if I, you know, were to take this on? How would I do it? And I even asked myself at one point, you know, why isn't there such a thing as a questionologist? So I looked around, you know, there's all these allergies, right? All these different types of allergies, <laughs> allergists. I looked around and I, and I saw there wasn't one, right? So then I asked myself, you know, what if I just declare myself a questionologist. And I did. <laughs> and I started calling myself that. I even uh, wrote it in the New York Times, one article I wrote, I'm a questionologist. And no one questioned it, by the way. <laughs> so it became, <laughs> like a, it, it became a thing. And then it became something that I had to live up to, right? Because I'd given myself this, this title, and now I had to live up to it by doing as much research, making sure I'm, I'm learning more about questioning than anybody else out there. I'm, I'm digging deep into every area of it. I'm trying to really build my expertise. So that was, those were sort of the questions. And now I would say the stage I'm at now with my question would be something like, how might I just spread the word about questioning in every possible way I can think of? And that is my current beautiful question that I could do that forever, right? I mean, that's a que- and that's that's what that's when you know you have a great, beautiful question when it's something that you can pursue and work on, and and you could do it forever because there's so many levels to it, there's so many directions you can go that this can be a lifelong uh, pursuit, and that's my favorite kind of beautiful question. If, if you can find that kind of beautiful question in your life or your work, that's a really great thing. 
I love the wisdom that you shared. And one thing I just want to double click on for our audience. So for anybody that's keeping up with our episodes, recently we interviewed uh, Dr. Sarah Beth Burke, and she is focused on this uh, notion of hybridity and how do we redefine ourselves and our careers. And you talked about basically how you took this title and you gave it to yourself and that became who you were in the world. I am a questionologist. And we've been inviting our audience through the work of Sarah Beth and our own work to really reimagine who we are in this future of work. And I think it's so powerful that nobody pushed back. When you stepped into that call and said, I'm a questionologist, you know, that, that the world kind of met you where you were at. And I think that's a really powerful example for people that are thinking about who am I now? What can I say about myself? And do I have license or permission to do that? And your, your example leads the way there. People loved it. And, and they love to have, people love to have a hook that they can grab onto about you, right? So like, it makes it so much easier for them to get, say, oh, okay, I get what that person's about. If you can give them some kind of a, a catchy kind of hook, this is what I do. This is what I'm about. And, and so I think that really, really helped me just from a self, from a marketing standpoint in terms of marketing myself, but then also from an identity standpoint, it gave me kind of an identity that I could follow. And, and what I say to people now is like, the questioning thing is so powerful and it's so good. Like, okay, you don't have to call yourself a questionologist because maybe that's too much. Like you, you don't want to, like, you don't want to do what I'm doing. Maybe you don't want to devote your life to, you know, just working on questions, but I think it's a great identity to think of yourself as a questioner, uh, to make that part of your identity and who you are. Because I run into people all the time. I'll tell you, when I do these speeches and things, people will come up to me at the end and they'll say, I've always thought of myself as a questioner. You know, even back when I was in school, I was, I felt like I was the one who was, who would, who would question things. And, and, and at my job, I was the one. And it's, it becomes part of your identity, you know? And I think you can, you can incorporate that into your identity. You can make it part of who you are and part of your, um, you know, your arsenal, if you will. And, and I think it's valuable. Like people love it. Like companies love it. You, you do have to manage it a little bit. You can't be like an annoying questioner, right? And that's, a, that's a subtle, <laughs> sometimes that's a subtle thing. You kind of have to figure out, okay, how far can I push? What are the best situations to be asking questions? And what are the situations where sometimes I should, you know, back off a little bit? Um, so you don't want to push it maybe to the point of being annoying. But if you can be, project this image of a really thoughtful questioner, I'm telling you, people love it now because they realize, companies realize they need those kind of people. They need it. I mean, that's, that's what surviving in the future is going to be about. Not only is the leader of the company going to have to be a questioner, but all the people working there are going to have to be questioners so that we can figure out this incredibly complex change that, that we're all going through. You talked about young people and, and this idea that you look back at your own life and said, I didn't really get taught how to ask questions. In fact, I can't even remember ever having a course or some kind of teaching on, on this. And then we talked about today, questions are vital to navigating this dynamic change in the future work. So I'm going to take a piece of your content from the book, which is you told this story of a four-year-old girl and that she was this ultimate question machine and that, that, that Harvard child psychologist Paul Harris says kids ask 40,000 questions between two and five. Yet in your book, you talk about by middle school, 
they've stopped asking questions. It's basically been taught out of them to ask questions. And I can remember this. You brought up a memory that I hadn't thought of a long time. My dad said to me when I was young, I want you to always question what's happening and what you're doing. And I can remember that vividly. And so I was always asking questions, but I noticed something that you brought up in the book. And that was, I stopped asking questions at school because it wasn't rewarded. And I was asking questions like crazy at home where my dad said, do this. It's a good thing to do. And so we thought, Alex and I were just thinking about that. And we go, this is a huge issue that we're trying to overcome now. Generations of people who've stopped asking questions at a time when it's never been more important. So how do we reignite that fire again in adults to go, questions matter more than ever? Yeah, well, there's two parts to that that I'd like to address. I mean, one is, yes, we can reignite it as adults. And I'll talk about that in a minute. I'm spending a lot of time with schools now, talking to schools about this. And, you know, they're, they're aware of it. And, and, and different approaches, like the Montessori approach to education, is very focused on allowing kids to really bring their questions out and, and exercise those, those, uh, their curiosity. But other school systems are, you know, they've been very answers-based for a long time. It's all about memorizing the answers and then, you know, spitting them back on a test. And we're all trying to figure out how we evolve beyond that model, because that is the model that has damaged our questioning ability. That model, which suggests to a child that questioning doesn't matter, that all that matters is, is knowing the answers to somebody else's question. So how we get beyond that is really, is really challenging. There are people, a lot of people working on it. There are things you can do. You can you can do exercises and drills with kids to get them to, to question storming so they get in the habit of forming questions really quickly. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff like that you can do. And a lot of people are working on it, but it's a big, big issue in education. And I, I, you know, I'm trying to make sure as best I can that I get the word out about that to people in education, that they have to pay attention to student questioning. It's not about the questions that the teacher asks. You know, that's a lot of times that's what teachers will say, oh, listen, I work really hard on the questions I, I, I pose to my students, but that's not what this is about. This is about the questions that the students ask and how do we encourage that and make time for it, which is a big challenge, and, uh, you know, just, just and help them get strength in that muscle. The interesting thing about questioning is we're born with, as questioners, so we have that kind of innate ability question that comes out when you're three years old, four years old, five years old. It's just there. So what we need to do is not even so much teaching people how to question, but encouraging them to do it and then helping them to take their questions and maybe improve them or get better at them and uh, be more comfortable asking them. I have to interject that since Nate read your book, he's asking questions constantly. <laughs> he's, he's calling me up. He goes, Alex, you know, what is this rash on my body? Why do I have it? Where are my keys? Why have you blocked me on Instagram? No. Like, these are the kinds of questions that Nate is asking Lauren, all the time. I'm not kidding you. He's not joking. I literally sent an email while I was traveling with my family internationally. And I go, these are the questions that caused us to create this business, the Disrupted Workforce, this podcast. It was a set of questions, just like you said in your book. 
that I said, why aren't more people talking about this? Why isn't someone helping with this? Why isn't this a national conversation? Why all this stuff just started coming at yeah, me? That's what I'm, happened. He's not. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. And then, and then my questions. wife is asking me, why are you forwarding Nate's emails to spam? <laughs> why? Why, Alex? Yeah. Questions do lead to other questions. And now this can be something that is um, in the business world. Sometimes uh, this is seen as a negative, right? Because it's like, when I come into companies and talk about questioning, you know, the big fear they have is, oh, what if we, what if we open a can of worms here? You know, what if, what if we start encouraging people to ask questions and the questions just never stop and, and people start questioning everything and they start asking random questions, crazy questions that are out of left field, questions that don't make sense. So they're worried about that. And you know, listen, it's not, it, it, it's, it's not a ridiculous uh, worry because it, there is an aspect of that to questioning. It can, it can sometimes go a little off the rails or it can sometimes seem like an endless um, kind of uh, uh, cycle. You know, and we've all been re- probably remember from, you know, college days and getting into a philo- uh, philosophy late night conversation in the dorm and where the questions just kind of spiral mm-hmm. down into, you, you end up with no answer to anything. Right. And um, it, that can happen with questioning. But what I, you know, say to people is, if you work on, you know, making your questions focused, and if you try to have some forward momentum to your questions, and that's where I, I came up with a framework like, you know, start out by asking why questions, but then move, move towards how, so, so that you're, you're asking why, and then maybe you're asking what if, but eventually you're getting to how, because how is more practical, right? So as a business, you don't want to just, you don't want to be doing philosophy, right? You don't want to be asking why, why, why necessarily. You want to start there so you understand stuff, but you want to eventually get to, okay, what's this going to lead to? How are we going to do something? What, what, what's going to come out of it? And that's a process. So you can, you, can, you can shape your questions and you can work your questions so that they do move you in a forward direction instead of just kind of going all over the place. Really interesting stuff. And I, and I like that point about uh, businesses that may have a fear of a culture of inquiry. Yeah. And, and I want to stick. They, they shouldn't because it's. No, so- they shouldn't. They shouldn't because the richness and the goodness that comes out of it far outweighs the disruption that it creates. Yeah. 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 And, and if you don't do it, if you don't do it, if, if you're one of the companies or organizations that's not questioning, you are going to be left behind. There's, there's really not much question about that. <laughs> Well, you, you have a lot to say about fear and uncertainty in your work, and we really admire that because a big focus of ours is how do we adapt and manage our mindset and emotions in this era of constant change or this VUCA environment that we often refer to, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And you see the notion that questioners actually use their skill of inquiry as a superpower to reframe fear and conquer uncertainty. And you have this great quote where you say, questioners learn to love that great unknown. So can you tell us about this art of conquering fear and uncertainty through the use of powerful questions? How do we do that? To me, everything is about attitude, right? It's about your attitude uh, that you bring to a situation. And when you're, and questioning is is not only a, um, a behavior and a skill, it's also an attitude, I think. So I talked about when earlier someone can 
embrace the idea of themselves as a questioner, when they do that, there's an attitude that goes with that. And the attitude says, I'm looking for things to be curious about. I'm looking for the unknown. I'm looking for what's new because that is where I can really use my curiosity. I can use my, um, my, my ability to ask questions, my ability to wonder, my ability to learn. I can use all those things in a situation where there is unknown, where there are new challenges, new opportunities. You know, there's two ways of looking at change as it's coming at you the way it is now. You know, you can either go into a defensive crouch and say, you know, how am I going to somehow survive in the midst of all this change? And how am I going to dodge all the bullets that are coming at me? And how am I going to, you know, it just becomes like a, like a hunkered down, you know, defensive mentality. That's one way to look at change. And another way to look at change is, is with an attitude of like, hey, all of this new stuff that's coming at me creates new possibilities. And if we can get ourselves into that mindset, and I'm not suggesting it's easy, you know, I know it's not easy. It's always, it's easy for someone to say, oh, just, just take this mindset or just take this attitude. It takes work, you know, it takes work to change your attitude. But if you can do that, if you can bring that sort of questioner mindset and attitude into this new environment, you just have a huge advantage and you will, you will be, it's sort of the fear subsides and the enthusiasm takes over. And that's when you're in a great, great uh, spot. That's when you're in a great position. And the people you work with and the people around you will see that. And they will get, you know, they will get energized by that. They, they will get energized by your energy. You know, curiosity is a contagious thing. So mm-hmm. if you're a curious person and you are expressing that curiosity, all of a sudden the people around you will start to become more curious. It's an interesting phenomenon. And uh, so, you know, we want to be the people who bring curiosity and questioning into the frontier, <laughs> you know, the great, the great frontier we're all on, where we're dealing with, you know, a million new things, most notably, you know, technological change. We want to be the ones who are saying, you know, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by how this new technology works and what are the possibilities it creates for me, for us as a team, as a company, for our industry, for our end users, for our customers, what does it mean for them? You know, so if we can be looking at that with that sort of curious mindset, it is just so, so powerful. Warren, a profound idea from your book, which I think was so ahead of its time. I don't even know if you could have ever realized how important this was going to be nine years ago when you wrote the book is that expertise is losing its shelf life, that having the answer is declining in value and asking the right question, the powerful question, the beautiful question that opens things up for everyone is rising in value. It's a huge shift, right? That most people, going back to what we've been talking about, haven't been seeing questions as this superpower, as this really valuable thing to add to their toolkit. And you wrote, quote, only through effective inquiry can we fully explore, probe, access, and hopefully figure out what to do with all those answers technology has in store for us, end quote. So can you tell us more about this prediction and shift you called nine years ago? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was already happening. You know, it was, it was happening. It's been happening for a long time. 
I can go all the way back to the 1960s and, uh, and, and a quote from uh, Pablo Picasso, the artist. And he said in the, in the mid 60s, he said, um, computers are useless because they only give you answers. Mm. And I thought that, wow. and it, there's something really profound about that. So what, you know, what Picasso was saying is that, you know, what we know now, and, and it's that, it's that the technology we create is a way to store, find, retrieve, bring together all, all the answers, the data, the, the, the information, right? And so it's absolutely great for that. But in the end, all that is is information, you know? All it is is data. And it only becomes useful when human beings can do something with it. And for human beings to do something with it, they have to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, they have to ask, uh, what do I need to learn from, the, from technology? What, what, what can the technology tell me? Then they need to uh, ask, well, how do I pull that information out of the database? How do I pull it out of AI? How do I, what's the best way to do it? And then they have to ask, um, you know, how do I know if the, if the information is correct? How do I know if AI or Google or whatever is, is leading me in the right direction or leading me astray? And so there's all of this human stuff that has to happen in order for the technology to work for us. And, and that's why I say that, you know, answers are becoming devalued, having the answers, because a human being doesn't have to store up that stuff anymore because it's all there. It's all in the database. What we have to do is we have to be the ones who know how to get it, know how to make sure it's correct, um, know how to improve the database, uh, know how to do all those kinds of things, but not so much to store the, um, the information. So that, and it's a profound idea that affects, you know, how we should think about how this affects our schooling in the future, right? Yeah. I mean, does it really make sense to have so much of our schooling be based on memorization of answers when now we know that that's like, that's what the computers will do. You know, we don't have to yes. do that. That's 100%. We should be thankful that we don't have to memorize stuff anymore. We can hand that off. So, I mean, in a way, we, we're, we're, we're catching a break because, you know, the technology is going to take some of the burden off us. But in another way, our burden is getting, getting heavier, our intellectual burden, because the technology is almost forcing us to up our game as thinkers and questioners and, uh, you know, just creative uh, creators. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I'm really happy that you jumped ahead because that is a place that we, we wanted to go with this conversation to discuss the AI era and that in this chat GPT world, you know, answers and the entire knowledge of human history are effectively at our fingertips. And you started to talk a little bit about the importance of critical thinking, which we absolutely agree is a human superpower in the age of AI. And I think also we want to draw uh, attention in this conversation to the idea that the outputs we get from generative AI in particular depend on the prompts or questions that we as humans put in. So are there any other ways that your thinking has evolved um, looking toward this moment that we're in the age of AI, but in particular generative AI for the power of questions yeah, I, I, as you can imagine, I've been thinking about it a lot. And so I've been studying it, the, the differences and the similarities between the way you would, for example, question a human being versus the way you question ChatGPT. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting. There are, there are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of 
skills of questioning that relate in both areas. For example, you know, to be a good questioner, you want to um, think about your question beforehand a little bit and try to get it maybe as focused as you can so that uh, it, it's, it's helping the, the person on the other end to, to understand, oh, okay, this is what they're asking me, right? Uh, and then as a human questioner, also, you have to be good at follow-up questions, right? So, so if you ask someone something and they give you an answer, it's not quite exactly what you were looking for. So now you say, um, you go a little deeper. You say, well, let me ask you a little more about that, or let me follow up on that, or let me go deeper on that. We, we, we know a little bit about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have to, they have to shift, shift the person a little bit. They've gone a little bit on, on, on a different track, and you want to shift them back. So it's the same thing with ChatGPT, right? It's like, it's going to give you the initial um, take it gives you is probably not exactly what you're looking for. So you have to be good at coming back at it with a follow-up version of the question and saying it to, to it effectively, this is what I'm really looking for. Or let me add this filter on, or let me add this extra layer to the question that will then help shift the conversation in a slightly different direction. So those are very similar um, skills. There are some differences as well. Um, I think one of the challenges is the prompt engineers understand how the technology works. So they can design prompts that are based on knowing what the strengths and weaknesses of the technology are. So that's a little different, right? So me, as an outsider, as just a questionologist, I don't necessarily understand the technology that well. And I don't understand, oh, the, the, the um, AI has a tendency to do this. Or if you ask AI this, it's likely to do that. I don't necessarily know that stuff. So I have to learn that uh, from experience. And that's, what we're, that's where we're all going to have to learn that. We're all going to have to bring our innate uh, or our human questioning skills to the process because they will help. But then we also have to have um, like robot questioning skills, you know, like what would you ask a robot? Because it's, it's different from what you would ask a human being a little bit. And you have to understand the nuances of, you know, the technology and, oh, I, I, I can't ask this because it's going to cause the technology to do that. I, I can ask this because it will help the technology to do the right thing. You've given us a ton of really great ideas on um, how to think about asking questions, how to approach the difference between a human question and a system, computer system question, and, and how to continue to probe and adjust and modify to get to that right question. And all of that's great. Let's flip it though and ask, what are the mental traps? What are the challenges that we run into as human beings or even back to the biases of that get in the way or limit our ability to be a questionologist, to ask a great question? I, I always talk about the three big enemies of questioning. The, the enemies are fear, and, and that fear can be fear of asking a question because it might make me look foolish, or it can be fear of asking a question because I'm afraid I don't have the answer. Oh no, what if I ask myself a really big question about my career or about the future or where I should <laughs> yeah. go? What if I ask myself a really big question and I discover wow, I don't have an answer to that. Like people are really fearful of that, of getting into that situation, which they shouldn't be because that's the way difficult, big questions are. Usually you don't have the answer, uh, but it's still good to ask the question, right? So anyway, fear is, is, um, fear is a big thing, and, um, but also knowledge. Knowledge gets in the way of being a good questioner. The more knowledge we have, 
particularly, let's say, in a specific area, you know, your job, your industry, the more knowledge you have, the less inclined you are to ask questions because you sort of fall into that trap of expertise, right? Where you feel like, I've seen it all before, I've done it all before, I've been in this business 15 years. Believe me, I've seen every situation possible. I know it all. And that's a big, big issue. It's a big problem. It's um, one of the biggest things that companies who are really have been hit hard by technological change, one of the biggest things they have to deal with is like the middle managers who are convinced like they know what they're doing. <laughs> they're convinced that they've figured it out. And what the companies have to say to them is like, no, you haven't. You figured out the old world. You figured out the old way of doing stuff, but now it's a new ball game, and you you're like a novice now, and you have to act like that, you know. So that's the big thing that gets in the way of, of being a good questioner is just that certainty and knowledge and overconfidence in our own ability to to know stuff. And so what I say, what I like to say is that today the comfortable expert must become the restless learner. And that's true for all of us. Like you, your expertise is great. I'm not saying it's not worth anything. It's always going to be worth something. It's always going to be a thing you have as part of your arsenal, right? As part of your, of what you offer. But you have to balance that with new learning, new skills. Humility. Humility. Well, humility is a big part of that <laughs> yeah. because you have to be, in, in order to step back from your own expertise and say, Maybe there's some stuff I really don't know. I mean, that's humility. But what I what I say about leaders is that it's interesting. They have to have a balance of humility and extreme confidence, like balanced together. Because if they're going to be questioning leaders, they have to have the humility to say, I don't have all the answers. But they have to have the confidence that people will still follow them after they've said that. That really resonated when I was reading your book. I, I thought that was very powerful, this notion of a blend of supreme confidence and very authentic humility, kind of all in one wrapper. Yeah, and, and when you see the best leaders, they have it. I mean, that they are so confident that they're willing to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's something we have to figure out together. That's great. This is, this is a, uh, a wonderful place to be because we'd like to try something new with you on the show today, Warren. And it's really important to us to give our audience practical takeaways. And we love your why, what if, and how model for formulating questions. So from a place of supreme confidence and also deep humility, <laughs> Nate and I put together a number of questions that we think can help supercharge people's careers, their work, and meet this moment more effectively. And we also took a few questions of yours that we thought were particularly powerful in this book. And what we'd like to do is, first off, share the two questions of yours that we think are fantastic, and then we'd like to share some of ours and kind of do a little mini workshop with you to sure. see how might we make these better, how, how might we tweak these to give people a rubric for when they do this themselves. Right. So, the first two questions are from your book. One is focused on trends. We love this because there are so many trends that are impacting the future of work. And you have this question, which is, what trends are changing my industry, company, and career? What trends are having the most impact on my field? And how is that likely to play out over the next few years? How does that sit with you now? Do you have anything to add? Would you tweak it? Do you think it stands as is? I think it's, I think it's still one of the questions that 
you know, you always have to be asking, right? It's like you have to look at what's going on around you in your field and say, you know, what does it mean? And and then what I would say is you want to, you want to dig deeper on those those kinds of changes. You want to there may be three or four changes going on in your industry or more than that. So you want to take them one by one and you want to subject them to, you know, my why, what, if, how model where you say, okay, there's a trend toward X, right? Uh, in, in, in our industry. Why is that happening? Why is that trend happening? Why might it be something I want to pay attention to? You know, why is it important? And then you might shift to like a what if model, like what if, what if I could find a way to incorporate this trend into what I'm doing? And then eventually you want to transition to how, you know, how, how might I begin to do that? And when you're asking those kinds of questions, especially the how, I advise starting small. Uh, Don't say, how might I, don't ask yourself, how might I become an expert overnight? You Mm. know? (laughs) You're asking yourself, how might I take one small step in the direction of what I'm talking about? If I'm talking about incorporating AI into my work, uh, because I've looked at that, I've I've asked the why questions, I've seen that that's one of the big things that's, uh, that's, that's changing things. I need to ask a how question that is very modest, like how might I do one small thing starting tomorrow? that incorporates AI as part of my everyday uh, workflow? Or how might I use AI in this one task, one small task that I'm not using it in right now? So that's basically the way I would say you can you can use that framework, that why, what, if, how framework to go through all of these issues. You sort of start with the big question of what's the trend? What's going on? And then you start to say, okay, why is it happening? What if I tried to do X, Y, or Z? How could I begin on that? How could I get started on that? And it's a, it's a nice way to sort of action, take action on your questions. That is so good. I love the call out to make that how a bite-sized effort because it is so easy to boil the ocean, to get overwhelmed, to get stuck. We're all familiar with making those big New Year's resolutions of how we're going to radically change yes. our lives in the coming year. and. A week or two in, we're no longer going to the gym because we set our expectations and set our sights too high. Here's a question that we wrote that is a deeper question. You said people get scared of asking the deeper question because they may not know the answer or they might have to do something right. with that deeper question. Here's a deeper question that we wrote that we think a lot of people are asking right now. Given how much has changed over the last three years, who am I now? What are my values? And what do I want from my career? Wow. I love that. That's, I, I can't improve that. That's, that, that's a beautiful question. It's, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, that really gets to the... We stayed up that, all night writing that one, Warren. It gets to the heart of it. That, that gets to the heart of it. And really, um, the, the one thing I would say about those kinds of questions is that um, they are very challenging. And so... You, you have to understand that that question itself is a project, right? And you have to approach it as such. So you, you, if you take that question and, you know, you may want to, a person may take that question and then tinker with it. Yeah, always, always feel free to tinker with questions and make personalize them, make them work for you. There may be that, that was like a three-part question 
that maybe two parts of it are right for someone, but maybe the third part is not quite right. They want to bring in something else, right? So, so you can, I, I advise people to assemble when they're assembling a beautiful question, don't be afraid if it has several parts to it. You know, uh, how, might okay. I, how might I do X while also making sure I do Y? And at the same time, always be aware of Z, right? So you're taking multiple issues in your life or multiple challenges and you're bringing them into the same question. You're sort of making the question a multi-part challenge. Now, when you're done with it, now you've got a hell of a question. I mean, this is something that is a big, it's like a wicked question, right? Because it's got parts to it and, and it's got side issues and it's got all kinds of stuff. But this is a thing now you can pursue for a long time. And it's a thing you can work on for a long time. So that question you just mentioned is, you know, along the lines of almost like a wicked question because it's, it's got multiple parts. It's big. It's complicated in terms of trying to, it, it means you've got to really dig deep to, to figure out, you know, who, I, who am I now as opposed to who, I, who was I before? That's deep stuff. So I think, you know, just approach it as a question that is going to be a project that you're going to have to think about and work for a long time, work on for a long time. So one more that we came up with is, and this is, we like this because it's about preparedness. On a scale of one to 10, one being unprepared and 10 being ultra prepared, how prepared do you feel for the future of work? Hmm. And that's numeric. That's different. And we that's wanted numeric. to ask you about that one because often yeah. questions aren't using a self-assessment with a numeric, but we were like, well, let's put one in there. Yeah. Uh, th those... Um you know, I tend to deal a lot in open-ended questions. That's more of a closed-ended question, right? Because it's got a factual, numerical, yes-no type answer. Those are really valuable for kind of setting the, the stage a lot of times. Like, so I would say that that is a good kind of opener for a question. That's a good one to sort of say, here's, this gives me an assessment of where I'm at or where I think I'm at. And now I can move forward with the other open-ended questions. Okay, okay, I know I'm a, uh, a, a six, um, how might I get myself to an eight? Uh, what would an eight look like? If, if I were an eight in terms of my preparedness, what would that look like? What skills would I have that maybe I don't have right now? How would my attitude be different? You know, so th that now you're getting into the sort of the open-ended questions, but I like the fact that you could start with a, with a more numerical closed-ended question just to set the table and say, this is where we're starting from. This is, uh, you know, this is, this is where and now you can work on where you want to go. Workshopping that with you was exactly what we were hoping it was going to be. Taking these questions and sitting with, because you're the expert, you've been doing this for a long time. You've written books, you're re-releasing -re a 10-year anniversary on this thing. And Alex and I are aspirational questionologists. And so we thought, let's workshop this with Warren. This is going to be so cool. So you know thank you about, for doing that. With us. I'll tell you though, what's great about questioning is like, I would, you know, you guys could do this in a room with people. You wouldn't have to have me there or anybody who's a sort of a quote unquote questioning expert. You would get to a lot of this stuff yourself. There's something about questioning when you, when you work on it that way, um, that it just builds questions, build off each other. People see things and, and say, oh, that question triggers this thought. And what if we were to add this onto that question or change the question this way? I've seen it happen all the time when I do questioning workshops. It's, it's pretty amazing. Warren, we're going to uh, wrap this up with a speed round. A speed round is a really fun way to ask you 
a question and have you give a gut response in 30 seconds. Just say what's on the tip of your tongue. And okay. I'll kick us off with the first one. How should it, leaders invite more people to ask questions while modeling the way? How can they give people the permission to do this more inside of companies? Uh, they just have to be vocal about it and, and be demonstrative about it. That, you know, that's where it all starts. You start by telling your people, I love questions. We love questions as an environment. Here's why we love them. We think they can do this for our company. And I have lots of questions myself. And here are some of the questions I'm working on. Here are some of the beautiful questions. I don't have the answers, but here's what I'm pursuing. I would love it if people want to work on these questions with me. And I would love it if you have your own questions uh, that you'll share with me. We are 100% aligned on that. Which brings me to this last speed round question, which is, as the AI era begins, do you think this is the golden era for questions and inquiry? Because of the nature of this tool that's so hungry for information and the humans at the keyboard prompting it, maybe is this the golden era for getting good at this skill? I would say in the, in the era of AI, it's either the golden age of questioning or it's the end of questioning. <laughs> I mean, it's yet to be determined. Um, it will depend on us and how we as human beings react. Again, if we, if we allow our questioning skills and our critical thinking to just be turned over to uh, technology so that we can just um, relax and uh, entertain ourselves in other ways, if we do that, um, then it, it's, it's bad for our thinking, our questioning, our, uh, our creativity. But if we can understand that we are the ones in charge of the thinking and the creating and of making sense of all of that data. If we can un fully understand and embrace the responsibility that goes with that, um, then it's going to be a golden era for, for questioning and for, and for creativity. Warren, thank you for being on our show. Thank you for your curiosity, your unique perspectives, for being such a forward thinker and identifying this powerful shift that favors questions over answers before most of us even knew that that was happening. And most of all, thank you for helping us to create this superpower of asking questions to reimagine our careers, deepen our relationships, and expand who we are. Well, thank you, Alex and Nate. And I have to say, those were great questions you're asking. Hey, Warren, if people want to find you, where are the best online resources to find you, listen to your work, or connect with you? You know, probably the best place is just go to my main website, which is uh, named after my book, A More Beautiful Question. So it's amorebeautifulquestion.com. Fantastic. And everybody, make sure to get ready to get the 10th anniversary book with 40% more content updated for the moment that we are in now and adding all these pieces around deepening relationships and critical thinking. So if you own the book, you got to buy a new copy. If you don't own the book, you got to get two copies. That's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Warren. Okay. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. 
The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future. Thank you.